Thank you very much, um, Johan. And um, now that you've introduced us all, I'm relieved of one of my most important duties. And so I will speak for just um, a few minutes and do um, the introduction, the sort of commentary, sort of maybe it's a bit too ambitious to say framing um, statements, and then we'll quickly move into each speaker so that we can um, make it as smooth and as fast as possible to maximise the opportunity for discussion. I also want to start by thanking the beautiful, absolutely most haunting and gorgeous welcome to country I've had ever. And that was quite an amazing experience. Um, and I'm really quite touched by the variations that we're now experiencing in this, in this um, ritual. I think that's a great sign of cultural innovation. Secondly, I, what I want to do in this little presentation is just to um, give a few little terms, open up the terms that we've got in front of us. Today, in this panel, it's called institutions and publicness. And what is public in this publicness? Well, obviously refers to the idea of public sphere, the public interaction, the idea of people interacting, working towards what is the common good, this collective value system that we generate through interaction and, and engaging and giving each other ideas. And of course, in the classical era, where this idea of the public, the common good, was first defined, it was assumed that it occurred within a certain territorial unit, in other words, a pretty small space, and it occurred in a face-to-face -face kind of manner. And that model pretty much held to be central in our understanding of what is public and public spheres right up until about a decade or so ago, when we started thinking about the idea of this public being formed not just by our face-to-face -face interactions, but also face-to-screen-to-face -face interactions. As this mediated form of a public sphere becomes a dominant and formative part of our understanding of what the public in publicness is, we see a dynamic shift in the way in which we understand what our culture is, what our identity is, what our aesthetic values are, what are our social goals, and so on and so forth. So we see a shift that the contemporary is trying to deal with is also the shift from the face-to-face -face interpersonal, face-to-screen to face interpersonal, and that expands not just the means by which people interact with each other, but also the spaces which can become connected with each other. Suddenly, the unit of the public in publicness shifts from that small bounded area that you live in and you see people on a more or less regular basis to the units you communicate with through various mediated me mechanisms. So the global and the contemporary and the mediated forms of interaction become central in defining an extended and much more complex network system, and in many cases a transnational system in defining publicness. Now that seemed to happen at the same time when our experience of public space was radically contracting in a material way. And the discussion that Peter led in the last panel about that in, in terms of the transformation of public spaces into empty spaces before they become recolonized spaces in the gentrification and corporatization of our modern cities was symptomatic of that profound change. And it occurred all around the world. The punk period that Sean was talking about occurred because there were lots of abandoned spaces that people could colonize, whether you're in a band or a musician or in a studio or etc. 
I worked in 1984 at Young and Jackson's pub, probably at the same time as Callum, and I earned in 12 hours... I didn't work there. Maybe, you worked in another pub. In 12, the point is not whether you work together, but in 12 hours I earned enough money to live for the whole week and pay my rent, etc., etc. And some of my friends like you would keep a studio in Chapel Street or in Flinders Lane with that amount of work. Now, nobody pays their rent on 12 hours bar work today. So therefore, it's interesting that this whole relational aesthetics phenomenon that occurs at exactly the same time occurs at a time when the public assets, either the abandoned ones of the previous industrial era or the actual state-owned ones, are contracting. The availability are contracting. And at the same time, artists are developing projects, Terry, as well as practices which are interactive, which are focusing on the collective, which are focusing on hospitality, which are focusing on building cross-cultural communication. That is an interesting coincidence, or is it a response? We can debate this. And at the same time, these new mediated experiences are occurring when the cities themselves are much more mixed than they ever have been before. Mixed in what sense? Not only class mixture, but also cross-cultural mixtures, greater forms of global mobility, etc. So all of a sudden, the idea what the cultural repertoire is that you refer to or you wish to extend becomes interwoven with lots of different people, positions and perspectives who are informing and transforming and reconfiguring the pool itself. So this process of interweaving becomes a radical new agenda in redefining the potentialities and the referentialities of what makes the publicness. So we have this idea of a new, a new configuration of publicness at the same time as the subject is also being radically rethought as well. The participant, the person, the citizen. I've mentioned the transformations in terms of our economic position, our cultural backgrounds and pr perspectives, but also one needs to think about our relationship to the public space, how we participate in public space. Recently, there was a report released by the Victorian government which tried to demonstrate how the 12 major institutions, from ACCA to the NGV, etc., generate audiences for return for their investment, etc., and had these beautiful little graphs in terms of numbers of people come and the amount of money spent, etc., etc. And so there was an interesting sort of glitch in this graph because while um, most of the graphs indicated quite successful audience generation by all these major institutions, there was one that went completely off the chart. And that is Federation Square, which is an open space, and it had 10 times the audience participation of all the other institutions put together on a fraction of the budget that all the other institutions claimed. Now, why? Well, because you could say they were just walking through and had no impact and just passed by. Or you could say they had minimal impact. Or you can say maybe they had actually had quite profound, but we don't know. But the point is, however, these people define themselves of having had a cultural experience while walking through a semi-open space, a square, 
an agora kind of environment. Now, that is an interesting shift in the idea of participation in the culture. This is a person who says, as I am walking through a space, I am also engaging with that environment because it's rich with cultural platforms and content. There are screens, there are other sculptures, there are installations, and so on and so forth. Now, this mobile person is, spec is being a spectator, but not in the static way. They are not contemplating nor being elevated in the conventional enlightenment models of what the spectator is meant to experience. And so this brings me to my final point about institutions. How have the institutions responded to these radical transformations that have occurred in terms of the spectator, the citizen, the participant, the sensory world in which they now operate in this mobile ambient sphere? And how have they responded to also what I call the post-normative era of institution building? where the institutions were once justified fully and wholly by saying, we are here to enlighten and to elevate our citizens. Now, we've got Carsten Holler making the, taking the piss out of that because he says, no, you're not. You're not here to enlighten and elevate and classify the works of art in terms of a, a, of a hierarchy because, after all, that's what conceptual art did when they exposed to us that that's the function of the museum by putting a great object of art called a filing cabinet as an object of contemplation. So Carson Holler puts a Ferris wheel, a golden Ferris wheel, to, in a sense, again expose the nexus between the entertainment information and tourism complex in which the contemporary museum institutions are now enmeshed in. And I also need to emphasize to highlight the role of the ironic spectator, which is us. We have a different kind of mode of spectatorial behavior there. So I'll end, therefore, with a little provocation to the group. In this world of the ambient image, when we are surrounded by not only by multiple platforms for delivering images and communication to us, not only are we exposed to more images, but does that actually produce a dissolution, a dispersal, or a proliferation and reconfiguration of our experience with the image world. Okay, let's quickly move to, um, to, to Callum and then take it from there. respond to your provocation now. Is that okay? Can we do that later? We've got time. So, uh, look, I have cobbled together a whole pack of things to say and, um, you know, I'm going to have to talk pretty quickly, I think, to get through, through it, uh, and some of which I'll read. Um, so when I first started showing uh, in an ARI called Store 5, which was part of the second wave, we talked about inhibitors before, the second wave of, wave of artist-run spaces that um, evolved in the early 90s in Melbourne. 
probably the first of this second wave uh, in Pran, as Nikos was talking about. Uh, there was a collection of artists and studios around this space that emerged at that time. You know, we, um, in, in a sense, um, uh, we were reliving rather kind of nostalgically or uh, I guess um, restaging the promise of the avant-garde and, and updating the nexus between minimal and conceptual art from the 60s and 70s, as so many artists did at that time. And we used to say that an audience of one was enough. Um, now that maxim, or it's not a maxim, that kind of um, calling, whatever you like to call it, was in part arrogant and specific. But I was also, I'd also add that partly it was due to the fact that we didn't know any other audiences outside of our own community of artists, writers and friends. And if someone we didn't know came to one of the exhibitions that were held every weekend, we were more alarmed than anything else uh, that, that someone might have been interested in what we were doing. But this incisive, or the incisive public or audience then, was the immediate community around which this work was produced and exhibited. So this makeup. Uh, the makeup of this intimate public has continued to change for me, but nevertheless, these small communities or publics still remain the most generative, critical, and supportive ones for sustainable practice, in my view. And we, 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 we have touched on that, and hopefully we'll touch on this idea uh, a bit further in the conversation. So that's not to say that one doesn't work in contexts where you, you don't engage with larger uh, publics in interesting ways, and I do work in those contexts, not only in public art or in, more conventional, or in uh, the more conventional art world, but also in theatre and architecture. Um, but the fact remains that the large public is an abstraction that remains hard to negotiate. Uh, in my experience, the larger the audience in the public sphere, the more this intimate and critical dialogue tends to break down. We all know that. This certainly makes me reflect on the contexts in which I work now, which is split between a kind of new engagement with uh, the university and its research culture, and there's all sorts of problems around that, of course, uh, but I think it's got great possibilities, uh, and, and the more conventional art world. So and in a sense, it, this contextual split describes a type of open ambu ambiguity that my work tries to achieve. So here, participation overrides content uh, because the audience is often regarded not as, a as, a, as an aggregation of highly specific communities and contexts, though I'm sure uh, larger, well-resourced institutions can examine forensically the demographics that they think they can cater to broadly, but rather they're regarded as a homogenized mass. Now I'm thinking here, of course, of biennales and art fairs, and we discussed Melbourne Now uh, earlier, uh, and more particularly um, uh, festivals like White Night. Um, uh, and these are embraced by both sides of politi politics now because they generate and engage with large, large audiences. And so one might think of, and it was mentioned, um, this, this new climate we're in has been mentioned often, and we can think of the instrum instrumentalization of the arts as being traditionally a role of Labor governments, but as the new, what's it called, National Program for Excellence in the Arts, formed by Comrade Brandis under the aegis of the Ministry for Arts, which is in itself is kind of Kafkaesque, I think, um, uh, has shown conservative governments are only willing to support events and institutions that are popular and so on. So what I thought I'd do, so I, I did, I think that question is floating up there because when I was looking at the questions that were offered uh, to us, um, it did occur to me that some of the engagements I've had with public art, uh, of work I've made, uh, have attracted, in particular one, has attracted an alarmingly large audience and, and vitriolic audience. So I thought it might be, it might be worth um, discussing this work, Hotel, 
Hotel, for, for those who don't know, is uh, 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 um, a small hotel, uh, 20 metres high, 5 metres wide, 10 metres across, so a diminutive hotel on the side of a freeway as part, part of a public art program that was commissioned by the private sphere, uh, which is kind of a, another conversation to have, really, about what is the relationship, it hasn't really been talked about, of these new models of relationships between the public and the private. Um, and, I mean, Helen mentioned it in terms of Transfield, and I was in the Biennale and, uh, and, and encountered uh, that context, and it was a tough context, um, but, you know, there are broader conversations to have around that, I think. But, so it was procured by the public sphere, which is, and procurement in public art is a very interesting thing to negotiate. You know, I wanted to make something that produced an effect uh, uh, for a specific type of audience, so in this case, so a driver, someone in a car, in the space of the car, in that confused space between the public and private in a, the non-place of a freeway. Um, um, it's this kind of unheimlich space. And I want to do something that otherwise might appear along the side of the road. So not a, not a sculpture, a kind of type of tricksterism, if you like, but something that, again, was slightly descaled and impossibly thin. But in an, in an attempt to produce a kind of moment of disbelief, if you like, or disorientation. Um, so the work is, in a sense, a sad type of abandoned other, strangely decontextualised and in many ways is not dissimilar what I might want to achieve in a work in a, in a, in a public museum and gallery. So, um, but then it had this, had this and, and, uh, and in a sense one might expect this, but I hadn't done public art before like this before, and so uh, it attracted, and hopefully this link will work, So, so there was a Facebook page, um, and there's a series of Facebook pages called That Awkward Moment, and this is meanwhile in Australia with all the ads, when you thought this was a real hotel. So, um, so certainly for me, I did want to create that moment where you might encounter this and think it was actual, and that in that moment that was the kind of content of the work, that was the gesture of the work. So there's, you know, 26,000 people, um, um, liking this page, thousands of comments, 90% of which say what a waste of taxpayers' money. So this is kind of idea of this excess and, you know, what about the homeless? And, and you'll actually see in this, I think, no, maybe it's not there, but I did post online, which is something you should never do. I did post and say, look, uh, look guys, it wasn't, it was the private sphere, it wasn't the public sphere, um, but, you know, back to the venting, and then everyone sort of attacked me again. So you, you do, it's, there's something... Um, but so, in a sense, uh, you know, when you put a work like this into a context like that, a huge context like that, it kind of is no longer your work. It's sort of, uh, the work is sort of other to me as well. And I was getting calls from radio stations, so it entered the sort of popular domain, and the kind of nuances of the work were just kind of reduced to so simply this, what a waste, um, you know, and, and, and I'm sure there are lots of people that do enjoy that work, but they're not kind of engaging it in, that, in, in, in this sphere. Um, so what I wanted to do, now can I get back, how do I get back, hang on, sorry, thank you. So what I wanted to do was talk about another public art project that recently um, um, was a part of, 
uh, generated inside the institution. So where I'm working at Monash University, um, I started this lab, you've heard, I, I don't know, but you've heard there's lots of universities starting these kind of research labs, if you like now. And MAP, um, at, at Fine Art at Monash, deals with art, politics, and the public sphere generally. That's kind of our research strengths. And I suppose MAP is the sort of public sphere arm of that in some ways in terms of projects. Um, and I know Terry had a go at projects, but it's a project. So we do a few things. We do inter interdisciplinary studi student projects, teaching projects. We work with students and recently in abandoned shopping strips. We do curatorial projects, so we're curating a big program of public art uh, in Paris, Parramatta Square in Sydney, which is actually looking at the procurement process around public art and how, and how you get artists involved and, and what, are the, what do the panels look like and all the different approaches that could be activated in a space like that rather than sort of simply con it being conditioned uh, the same way. So there's a, a possibility to kind of change things uh, from there. Um, and one of the things uh, I did uh, with this um, group of people, um, including uh, Nikos here, uh, was a submission for a memorial in Canberra called Immigration Place. Um, and uh, we put together a team of um, curators, writers, up there, Daniela Trimboli is not there. She, was a, she is a PhD student with a, an expertise in migration and interactive public art, um, and a number of architects and landscape architects and, and what have you. And the site is, um, I haven't got a pointer, but the site's sort of dead center of this uh, map in Canberra, that's Parliament House up top. Uh, Tent Embassy is down on the far left corner. Um, it is opposite the Office of Prime Minister and Cabinet, so if you're talking about what type of public something this might have, you know, I think Senator Brandis and his colleagues will be looking at this daily, and in fact, um, uh, you know, it's something to sort of think about in terms of the development, and it's outside the National Archives. So, together we, we, we went through a kind of iterative process where Nikos and Daniela, in a sense, drove the ideas uh, around the project, a kind of frame, and and this iterative process, everyone kind of contributed to its kind of development. So we looked at uh, um, Paul Howes, who's a Nagambri elder, who's on the panel, and we looked at the indigenous history uh, to that context for the Nagambri, um, it's, uh, which is very particular around women's business, and it's, just, um, it's cited in a kind of womb. Um, we looked at Tent Embassy and the history of Tent Embassy and this incredible you know, sense of a sort of permanent impermanence and the kind of politics of sovereignty around that for the First Peoples. And then we looked at, really generated by Daniela and Nikos, and perhaps Nikos can talk a bit about this, the kind of complexity of the migration story. So it's kind of embedded, there's a sort of politics embedded in this, of course. So from the beginning we're saying that everyone's a migrant. I mean, indigenous people came here across, and many believe they came across the land 40,000 years ago. Um, and, um, sorry. So this, the, the complex story of sort of migration we wanted to, to tell was around ideas that Nikos had developed, the oscillation of contemporary migration between dual origins, but not, not between dual origins, but rather as turb a turbulent vacillation between multiple points. Nikos talked about a kind of interweaving of paths, so we wanted to do something that described a kind of interweaving through a kind of landscape, and then a kind of symbolic way to reflect this fluid and, and turbulent story. So, these are kind of the various iterations we went through that did look at, um, you know, uh, a kind of a, quite a disturbing space down the bottom based on this stacking of kind of archives and stories, if you like, that the work was going to be projecting these, these, um, 
these migrant stories, um, it's orally uh, uh, migrant stories through it, but uh, the kind of, the, the, the sort of, I guess, almost forbidding space. Um, and then eventually it sort of came to this space here, which is this kind of landscape that you can enter from multiple points um, with a number of water holes. It's like a kind of wetlands uh, with the steel stacking and this kind of symbolic sort of um, uh, rolling uh, hills or waves, if you like, taking the kind of sine, waves, sine wave as a sort of basis for it more generally from the air. And that's uh, really, really it for me. Thank you. Hello. I'd also like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners on the land upon which we stand, so very appreciative to be here. I guess that um, I had prepared a little bit of a snapshot of something that the gallery does in terms of our engagement with the public, but having heard everyone's talks, I've kind of reassessed a little bit what to talk about. So when I first spoke with Nikos over the phone, I said, you know, what we're used to doing at the gallery, or me in particular, is giving a lot of uh, PowerPoints that are, this is what we're doing, it's amazing, lots and lots of images. Ellie in the, in the audience there would have helped me to put these fabulous artworks that we're doing and kind of the way forward and building a momentum of positivity. And I think that I do need to acknowledge that the conversations here today have been uh, very heartfelt and also leading in a direction that, yes, there is a lot of positivity, but we also do need to acknowledge that there is a difficulty at the moment in terms of funding and in terms of a whole lot of things. And Peter, thank you for pointing that that it is cyclical and that there's things, uh, we, we're kind of always placed in this position because the arts are always something that is seen um, not as the as I think you mentioned, Callum, or someone did about that, of course, hospitals and care and roads and things seem to always come before our needs. So it's very, very difficult for us to prosecute what we need to do. But I would like to acknowledge that there are institutions that are really, really suffering and that are about to suffer even more. I mean, um, Kim Machen, Machen has just walked out, but obviously MAP is an institution here in, in Brisbane that has done incredible work for a long, long time and which has been defunded. We saw the Centre for Photography as well with Maurice Ortega um, was completely ended. So at the gallery, we are very aware of those things and we certainly don't, um, don't underestimate the importance of what that means when all of those organisations aren't there anymore. And we, I hope that we can open discussions a little bit more as I think the IMA has done so well for us to be able to actually, I mean, the fact that I'm here today, I really appreciate it to be able to um, keep in that conversation and that we can keep discussing. I think too, Helen, you spoke about relations and for us, I guess that's, we need to find better ways to work and um, we need to do that in very, very different ways. Obviously our panel was to talk about audiences and it always almost seems again, uh, a little crazy to speak about audiences because of the, what we've been discussing throughout, 
since one o'clock, not only through Terry showing us all of the history of um, particularly independent spaces. So again, I feel a little bit out of place in that ours, our history has been very different to that and I haven't done a PowerPoint for you on that history. And we have had a very interesting history as well in terms of how we've moved through the city. We're also in a very privileged position in that we're not like the NGV or the um, Art Gallery of, of New South Wales, for example, that have all of these competing spaces around them. We've um, managed to, with two big buildings, um, where we have been well resourced for quite some time and in, there was a pocket when we are very well resourced. And so I think that um, the IMA has always had an interesting relationship but it's been probably a little bit easier for us to have our presence, uh, I'd like to acknowledge that. But also to acknowledge that we're working in ways of how we might differentiate ourselves from the IMA, for example, from the university galleries, uh, from a number of spaces that are doing things differently and where does that where do those conversations that we've been having up to date, how do they feature and mesh in what we're trying to do as well? And um, yeah, I think we can talk a little bit more about that. So I kind of um, had wanted to talk about that, so to acknowledge that. Um, I did also want to say that quite a few of us on the panels have spoken a little bit more personally, so I did want to add a little bit of something personal about myself. And I, I guess that I wanted to say I have been part of an institution that has had its funding completely cut, and that was the Jammu Gallery. I don't know if any of you knew it, but it was a venture of the Australian Museum, and it was trying to work with culture in a very different way. So it was uh, a venture that was featured in Customs House in Sydney, and the whole way of working was working with another artist Brooke Andrew, so it was Brooke Andrew and I, he was representing Indigenous Australia and I was looking at the Pacific and we were trying to work so that the collections would be brought out in a very different way and that lasted about two years and it was my first job, so my first job was a failure, <laughs> so I was very, very upset about that, so I do know and we kind of knew very early on that we probably wouldn't be supported either by the Australian Museum that started the change began very, very early on that they said, oh, actually, we're not that interested because the director had changed. So it was quite obvious that there was going to be no more support for that. And I guess that that's also a reality of the arts is that you might have one government or a set of leaders that supports what you do and then another that doesn't. Same, we've been speaking a lot about Brandis. In three years' time, what will it be? Will it be the same? Will it not? So I did want to add that. Um, for my, as I said, I've got a set of a few slides. Some will make you laugh. There's a little bit of irony in there. I've got a little bit of Carsten Hollow, Nikos, so that's something for, that we can talk about. But essentially, in, in speaking about audiences, if I was doing a normal talk, I would just talk about all the different things that we're doing with audiences. Like, we're doing so much. We're doing 50s plus. We're doing with the children. We're doing cinema programs. But you're not the audience to do that to. I guess what I'd like to say is that I think that in the past we've perhaps done even more of those little branches of we try to get to that audience, that audience, that audience, but now we're trying to perhaps work more holistically in the gallery so that when people walk in, they've got to be able to have whatever experiences they need. So a lot of our audiences are families, so what happens when they walk into the museum? Where do they go? What is their experience for them, for that individual person, but also for their partner and their children? So it's a little bit, I think, a little bit of a different 
kind of emphasis, as indeed maybe some of the uh, way that we apply for money might also be, as we talked about project-based money as opposed to overall gallery money or overall uh, institutional money. So you see that that's kind of our bread and butter. Families come in. We've got this Yayo Kasama project traveling the world and having millions of audiences, but how does that translate? Some of the really interesting things that we're doing in the gallery, and I, I will only mention one is, for example, we're working out of our Cinematheque in a very interesting way. So we're the only gallery that has a Cinematheque. And so people like our curator, Jose De Silva, is bringing out um, performers to engage not only with the film, but engage with the idea of who David Lynch is, because it was supporting David Lynch. 21st century is the spot I'd like to start because it's a little bit um, kind of, I guess, engaging, Helen, with some of the ideas that you had about the NGV and Melbourne now in that it's, it's extremely uh, unashamedly bringing in the popular and kind of embracing some of those things. Nikos, I appreciated that you brought in a little bit of the irony in the cast and hollow, and we can forget some of those elements as well. So the buzzword of participation, which I think, again, Helen, you mentioned as almost like there's a, a certain language that an Esperanto of um, how we talk about contemporary art. And certainly this art, you could talk about this in a similar way, whether you're here or whether you're in France or Europe or the States. And that language is a very corporate language about, you know, we talk about audience engagement and that being the most important. So um, certainly that participatory aspect is something that we're looking at very carefully because this is what we're told from our audiences that they love. So we have approximately about 1.2 million people a year come through. And so what makes up that um, audience is people saying, we want more of this stuff. And we all know through the writing of Claire Bishop and others and Nikos and a whole lot of other people what that means, what that means when people are actually physically making an object or participating in the, in the creation of an artist's idea. And there is some, uh, I think there is some benefit of that. There is some creativity that is then kind of dissipated throughout our audiences that we need to be aware of, but we also, of course, need to be extremely careful about it. Having seen that 21C, and I didn't show you, there's a million images, obviously, it was the whole building was devoted to art. It did have some very, very serious art through it, as well as some of this more participatory um, art that I showed you. When we did Sai Kuo Chung, which was another uh, really popular exhibition, we were worried it was four, it was really four installations compared to an entire building um, being devoted to all of this art so that you had to keep coming over and over in order to grasp it all. But the audiences actually really responded to these four works. And I think that that again is another thing for us in terms if we're just looking at audiences about what do people respond to? Why did they respond to that? They had to pay for it. So why did they keep coming? What is the aspect of wonder that people want to be engaged with and that they seem to perhaps find a lightness in there? How am I going for time, Nikos? Three, four minutes. 
three or four minutes. I did want to talk just briefly about the APT and what I had um, what I had done is actually so this is the sort of slide just to make you laugh. It's the kind of thing that I would be working on all the time. So how many people? What are the children? What's the demographic? What's the um, the, the economic impact? All of those things are what then enable us to go for funding and enable us to also go to sponsors as well. But the spine of my talk was really to address how we deal with audiences both internally and externally. And I did want to use this wonderful artist called Li Ming Wei from Taiwan, and who very early on had done this participatory um, project where you wrote a letter to someone that you hadn't had the chance to, sp to say something to. And it's got a some beautiful premises. We've seen work like this before, but I guess what I wanted to show was not only that it had started very early on in the gallery, that we just haven't just jumped on the bandwagon, but also this artist is an artist that we've been working on for quite some time, as was Saiko Chung. So for us, it's about trying to create meaning not only with our audiences, but also through those artists that understand the institution and how we might keep going. The project that I particularly wanted to chat about was the Bodhi tree. So this is a form of a public artwork. It's a tree, it's a Bodhi tree, the tree of enlightenment. So cutting was taken out of Sri Lanka and then brought in. It took four years in the making because it was so hard to get that cutting and also the priests in Sri Lanka couldn't understand why this project was important. And so the artists explained that people did want Again, not that aspect, wonder's probably the wrong word, but that they came to institutions in order to experience something, to have a sensation of something, and he wanted to give them that through the tree. And as soon as he said that, that's when the cutting was released. So you see it, it's on the left-hand side. So it's a beautiful work that will keep going well beyond all of us. And the last project is a Guernica in the sand, which was a representation of Guernica that we know so well, but it's in sand. And I did want to talk very briefly saying that our way of uh, addressing this idea of audience is to have be trying things in different ways. So the idea of ephemerality, as you, you've been doing, Peter, for Brisbane, is just about what you do with projects that, when they're finished, so you can see, end up like this. How do you, how do you maintain that over a number of months if we need to keep it. And indeed, that's the topic for the next APT. We're looking at performance and ephemerality in a very large sense, and it's a real challenge for us. So for us, that's the way that um, hopefully with a team of people that we're working with that we can try and address some of those issues, but also work towards those relations in a more meaningful way. Thank you. So um, what we're going to do is basically talk about a project that um, the Biennale we know is, a, is an institution. We've been talking about institutions, and the Venice Biennale is a very specific kind of institution. And the project that we're talking about is uh, on site right now at the Venice Biennale, um, and it's called Coronation Park. 
Um, it was an interesting um, invitation by Okui because it was meant for the Giardini, which are the gardens of this thing, but of, 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 uh, of the Biennale. But what is also very interesting is that it, the gardens are lined by the national pavilion, so it is very much um, a site that speaks to a certain history of how the construction of um, state glory or representation or what what is considered the best of us that is constantly being cited. And it's, it has its own inner politics, but it's also very much the nation is a site of construction. Like it's, it is another kind of institution, if you were to think about it, as much of a socialized idea as, as a notion of who we are as a community that is constantly made and unmade. The nation is a sticky one. But for us, it became an interesting proposition to think about what it meant to be in the gardens and as Okwik uh, conceptualized it, the gardens of disorder. So what could we contribute to the gardens of disorder where you were surrounded by the acme of what, a st of what states thought they were? So we came up, so we decided to go back to a moment in our own personal history, which is encountering um, sculptures like this. Um, this is, when I first went to this place, it was just, it, was, it, it wasn't looking so neat. It was just a bunch of sculptures that were left behind by the, these were the remnants of the British Raj and these sculptures instead of being destroyed had been kept together in a spot. And the spot had been the place where in the, the 1911 Darbar had taken place, King George V, King George V had uh, come down to sort of be declared emperor and all the Maharajas and Rajas of all over what was not India, because there was no such thing as India. Um, it is a much later construction, but all the sort of uh, potentiaries, plenipotentiaries, um, all of those people got together to, ha it was a big crowning, and then in that, and an obelisk was sited, but on that site now is what is, a, this is Coronation Park. And you can see these are the sculptures that are the remnants of that time. Um, it became an interesting starting point for us to think about, um, the hubris of power uh, and, the, and the sort of the anxiety around its and possible, well, what we would call the inevitable abdication of power. And to, to sort of play riff on that um, in the Giardini. And so these are sculptures on site, which are on the axis that goes down. So this is from the entry all the way at the end of this line is, of course, the British Pavilion, which, um, uh, so you have the French pavilion, the British pavilion, you have all of the Swiss, the Nordic. For those who know, there's, uh, I had completely forgotten until I went back after years and years how many, and how small the Giardini really is. But it was really, um, so as you can see from each of the, um, and it's also quite nice to go to the Giardini before the opening. This is what it looks like, empty and beautiful because it is actually a promenade. Um, meant as a promenade, which you never feel when, well, at least I've only been at opening time, so you know how it is when you're the artist, you install and then you get booted, you leave after, the, you never know actually how the exhibition develops. But this is just first to give you some uh, images of the piece, um, and I'll tell you some more. I don't know if you can see, but um, each of these uh, sculptures this is King George himself. Um, 
And as you can see perhaps most clearly in this piece, uh, each of these sculptures has a, a cut-up quality about it. it. It is literally, literally talking about the erosion of power. It is, in a sense, one of the most literal pieces we've done. It speaks directly. It speaks directly of power. It, it speaks directly to power. And it does so without being circum, you know, without even being meta, like not even, not even taking recourse to any kind of metaphor, except that each of these um, sculptures is accompanied by a plaque. Um, the plaques are extracts from an essay by George Orwell called Shooting the Elephant, which is what he wrote when he was a, um, min, uh, an official of the British Raj and at that time, I think, was in Burma. Um, and he, as, as a representative of the British government, when an elephant went must, he was called upon to, to, uh, to do his role, to, to shoot the elephant. And it was, of course, a point in which he, to shoot the elephant and not to shoot the elephant were both moments of great anxiety and crisis. Can you, sh he couldn't, he couldn't shoot the elephant. But what was really interesting are the, what we did was we took these fragments of text, which I should really have put pictures of and have not. Um, maybe you can talk about this. Um, what Orwell does is use this opportunity to reflect on what it means to be a public official, to face the public, much as monuments do. Uh, and he, in a sense, uh, it's full of anxiety because the uniform, the public role itself, becomes for him um, a kind of mask. And he talks about how he becomes an effigy for himself. Uh, and it's quite strange to see this text as a, as a way of thinking about public monuments because all public monuments are some kind of masquerade. They, they perform certain specific functions. And if one could think of perhaps this piece as responding to the idea, maybe a friend of ours, Kwaktemok Medina, curator, has recently been talking about the anti-monument. And perhaps these are examples of anti-monuments, which all monuments eventually become, because they, they eventually become um, sort of monuments to their own forgetting. Because what's interesting, for instance, in Melbourne, we saw how many sculptures like this still exist in Australia, in, especially in a city like Melbourne. And they become more or less rendezvous. They're places you meet under. So the reason why King George V is there is so that you can get a coffee with a friend and meet someone under the statue of King George V, for instance. Uh, the other people have replaced these characters in, in, in India. Uh, the, the nationalist sort of pantheon now stands on pedestals exactly in the same spots where um, the, uh, these, these uh, gentlemen used to, to stand. And they're still places where you meet each other and you say, we get off at the metro station, meet under the statue of Patel and we'll take it from there. So in a sense, they become reminders or notes, aid memoirs in a city, but not to themselves, but to their own forgetting. And uh, Orwell uh, does a remarkable job of talking about that anxiety of being someone who's, in a sense, being able to see his own oblivion. He sees the ridiculousness and the complete nonsensical nature of power uh, of the British Raj. Uh, and it is his moment of realization that shooting an elephant brings about. So in some senses, these are reminders in the Giardini that, the, that there is an element of hubris attached to being 
uh, Spain or Belgium or Britain or India, that these are momentary constructions. The nation itself is a monument perhaps to its own eventual demise. I just want to, talking about forgetting, I just want to flag the fact that, you know, you would think that, uh, you know, when you walk into the Jardini, this is, you know, you're seeing all of these things. And a lot of people would so say, oh, you've, you know, you've got work in the, in the Binale, so where is it? And we'd be like, you're standing under it. And they really did not, so it was interesting, they really did not see the work because it seemed, it's, you know, it's interesting also how they had already taken on that role that other things take a bit longer to do. They seem such a part of what is considered the language of such structures. You know, a place like Giardini and outside in Venice, you would have pieces that would speak of the past. And the fact that they spoke of the past in... Um, by, by sitting in, 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 in this more kind of um, violent sort of way, it seemed to not... Yeah. Uh, so it was interesting. We said it was the most... As we were laughing with another friend, this was the most the largest and the most invisible <laughs> piece in the Giardini. Which is, which is uh, I think, one of the characteristics of what public sculpture is. And it was, it was on our part uh, a way of thinking about what it means to be visibly invisible. I think, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's it. Really? being so punctual and um, timely and interesting. Um, we've got ample time for discussion and, um, and we've got an opportunity for a response from Louise Bennett who's going to do it from the floor. But before I hand it back to, or hand it over to Louise, any questions you want to bring to each other, fellow speakers of this panel? Is there any points of clarification you want from each other or, I mean, if I can start with you, Maud. You raised this point about um, the aspects of wonder. And I thought that worked on a number of levels. First of all, it worked in you, you used it to communicate the motivation for people to keep coming back to a space without an, uh, an obvious reason, perhaps. Secondly, I thought it was implicated in your, in your description of the um, process of getting permission for the tree to be, the cutting of the tree. Because again, there was a moment of incredulity, but somehow persuasion needed to be gained. And that occurred through perhaps a moment of wonder. And I think this also is relevant to the kind of bu abusive venting that perhaps you received, Callum, in the, the moment the artwork leaves your studio and goes into the public space and people automatically stop seeing the work in the way in which Schutter and Monica even described very brilliantly. They don't see the work, they just see an opportunity, a platform in fact, for their own prejudice to be performed in public. And so we have this sort of tension here between the moments of wonder and, and this other kind of reaction. And I want us to hold these two kind of moments in mind when we also bear in mind also the tyranny of political economy that hovers over us as an institution and publicness. What I mean by the tyranny of political economy is not just the fact that you have to make a justification sheet 
in terms of the economic impact for your museum, but also that that becomes the primary story by which you communicate the value of your practice. And, and whether um, we need to complement that discourse with a discourse that has the capacity to reinvigorate um, the experience of wonder without collapsing ourselves back into these enlightenment or romantic ideas of art is good for us, but perhaps not also reducing the goodness of art to an instrumental economic imperative as well. And how, as individuals in our society, we can make ourselves and collectively our society more sophisticated by saying, and we also do believe in these other criteria, which in the center of which is not just an instrumental kind of benefit, but is an aesthetic wonder. So that's my hearing of what you guys said. And more, can, I can, can see I you just, uh, Yeah, it. I think that that reminded me that there was a study done in England called Imagination. Imagination, some of you may have heard of it. And it was about precisely that how we might, if, if we're going to be measured only in terms of these financial metrics all the time, how could we then turn that around and kind of use it with to kind of talk to the bureaucrats of saying, well, okay, you want metrics? Well, in this study, Imagination, they looked at how the impact of when people went into art galleries or had, a, particularly it was, it was more in terms of curriculum at school. So when there were, um, not subjective is the wrong word, when they had kind of more art-based uh, programs and subjects, the individual as a whole benefited more and they had found a way to measure that. And I think sometimes in response to that, we do need to bring in the wonder as well and kind of remind people. And I think, you know, words like cultural capital had left Queensland. I'm mm. hoping it might be able to come back, you know. It's a, it's a term that, again, it, it's a financial <laughs> term, but maybe that's something to be able to, to have that language, that Esperanto language, but for the... <laughs> for our funders and for the bureaucrats, and same with um, that, that study. So hopefully a little bit of both, finance and wonder. Um, I, well, as I say, uh, in terms of these works that I showed today, of course they don't leave the studio because they're produced outside the studio and it's a totally different um, network of production um, that you're dealing with. And I do like the idea about mon monumental invisibility that these works kind of achieve. and. I, um, and you can go to a lot of trouble just to achieve that. And I suppose I undersold it a bit, but that moment when you encounter a work like mine and you think it's real or, or not, that is a kind of moment of wonder mm -hmm. as tied to a kind of aesthetic wonder mm -hmm. that is, um, you know, I think potential, uh, a poetics that is kind of potential. Um, but just to the point of the capital, um, you know, I'm part of something at the moment in Victoria, as you know, which is using the, the we kind of say the dreaded creative industries, which has started up in Queensland, um, QUT. And um, it really it is a kind of, as you say, a sort of method to try and convince government that the arts is a primary industry and they can leverage it across, uh, across government. Because the hardest thing for them to do is they, go that they, know, they know that all the money in, uh, in Victoria for the arts is in defence. So how do you get money from defence to come into the arts? You know, and, it's happening in Istanbul around the celebrations of the Gallipoli and these events are sort of tied up with nationhood and they're kind of complex. But there is a kind of capacity, I think, to use the economic metrics 
because that's all governments understand. So many, so many people in governments and arts ministers don't like the arts, don't understand it really. So to convince them of the kind of wonder or aesthetic wonder is very difficult to do unless they're embedded into it. So they're, they're kind of, I'm, not, I'm not justifying it. I think the economic argument is very problematic. But if they can use it to kind of leverage money across governments to get more money into the arts, then and they think that will work, then or the arts minister thinks that will work, then that's that's probably a good thing. Should I, and Monica, do you feel these tensions in your context as well? No, I mean uh, we feel them. I I suppose in interesting ways because our work uh, has to often travel to contexts where these are mm. real questions. Mm. Uh, because as Callum or any one of us would, um, would undoubtedly understand, the, the space of production in contemporary art is an international one. So what happens in one place definitely affects the careers of artists everywhere because we are all dealing with institutions internationally. As far as India is concerned, uh, culture has never been a priority of any government, and it's not only this one, but of all governments. I mean, I, I, we did some, we had a show recently at the National Gallery of Modern Art, which was, which is a national institution, and it was wonderful to show there because of the fact that there were lots of public, uh, there were lots of people came <laughs> to the, publics to, lots of publics come to the National Gallery of Modern Art who would never go to a contemporary art show. So that's, I mean, that's a bit like what, what you're talking about. but. While preparing for that show, we did some sort of research in, in the National Archives about what, what was the NGMA and where did it come from. And uh, it, the first governments, which is you know, what all Indian liberal progressives like to talk about, which is Nehru's government, placed culture under the Department of Research under the Ministry of Agriculture. So that gives you an indication of how, how much they valued culture. And it's been downhill since then. So. <laughs> That gives us a, uh, it gives us a, in some ways it gives also the opportunity for us as artists or people in the, in the cultural sphere to think about what do you do when you don't have anything to, back, to rely on. So it encourages a certain kind of uh, out of the box thinking sometimes uh, and a lot of lament otherwise. I prefer the out of the box thinking yeah. to the lament. There's certainly a great deal of niftiness and nimbleness that's necessary in all sectors. Yeah. But also, I thought your point about um, the sculpture being sculptures of power, but there's a veil that's thinly held over the face, which covers the tense anxiety that you mentioned, and that what is interesting in our particular moment in culture now is that that anxiety has gone one step further and, and you've effectively decapitated. Yeah. And that to me speaks to the fact that the public has become plural. Mm. Publics, yeah. yeah, and in that plural, it's not just in the international context of the Giardini, but probably even in India. Mm. And, so, and certainly in places like Melbourne where, as you say, those sculptures are there but for whom are they resonating? And we had that question about for whom earlier. And so I think that's an important point now to think about is that if you are to build a 21st century sculpture, like Callum does, in a way, he quite rightly picks an international language as the reference point, whether it becomes an object of contempt or, or awe is, 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 um, 
is secondary, but because we have to think about what is the repertoire that will have at least a catch for these pluralities. So that becomes part of the context. And, and, and here I'm thinking of the very seminal essay by Daniel Beren, when he says, you know, the moment the artwork leaves the studio, it's alienated. So let's start in, the, in that condition of alienation and make something that is already going to only exist in a state of alienation. Well, all I've produced is nodding heads, but I mean, I think <laughs> Louise has got a point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You didn't want to come to the stage, but you'll either have to stand up and really project or, or come to the stage. Oh, well, now I feel guilty. Hey, everybody. Can you hear me this now? This is Louise. <laughs> Louise Bennett, um, our respondent. Yeah, so I'm an artist who works inside White Cube and outside white cube context. Um, as an artist and as well as a co-director of um, Accidentally Any Street Space here in Brisbane. And I have um, intentions when I'm working outside of the white cube to connect with the viewer in a specific way. Like I'm dealing with ideas of um, mediation and distance and then trying to grapple with that and connect people to be closer. So I'm just wondering about the artists on the panel. Um, when you work outside of the white cube, it is kind of more inducive to viewers having an experience that, you know, is shared or, um, I don't know, I'm just wondering, like, do you have in mind an intention of a specific experience people should be getting from the work? Do you have a range of things? Like you were saying that some people missed the, um, the monuments altogether, so it's like, you know, do you have an ideal experience of what viewers should be getting, or is it just an open-ended thing? Like, what do you, is there something specific that you want people to get from your motel work that you could talk about? Uh, Does that make sense? No? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I, um, you know, I don't, actually. Uh, yeah. I think for me, and there are so many different types of practices, of course, but there, for me, um, a kind of openness is uh, of a reading or kind of access into something is probably not dissimilar between, you know, working in the white cube, so-called, or, or outside in the world. Certainly the conditions for production are different, certainly the publics are different, mm. um, but uh, actually, I think for me, I mean, the, 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 the work, which is still nascent, of course, of Immigration Place, there is an attempt to try and immerse someone in a kind of experience that hopefully kind of uh, negotiates all the terrain that we've kind of thought about um, that, that is equally political and poetic or what have you. But um, it's, 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 it's kind of willfully trying to keep it open. So it sort of belongs, still belongs in a way related to kind of old forms of sort of modern sculpture mm -hmm. in a way. Um, whilst not being sculpture, um, certainly in the case of the hotel. Then I'm interested in, um, and sorry, you, you guys to answer as well the first question. Um, 
with this open-ended um, response that you're talking about that you're happy for viewers to have, do you have conversations with people who have experienced the work and kind of collect a range of, um, you know, what's actually being experienced and what's... Well, I tried to online, but um, no. Um, um, uh, look, I do. You know, you encounter that all the time. I and mean, all artists encounter individuals' responses to work and it changes for every person. I think every person can, you know, negotiate something and it can reflect back on their life in some way or their work. And um, it's nice to have a kind of range of conversations. So, yeah, of course. I think when we are making work, it doesn't matter whether it's within or without. I think the question is not so much what we want for the other person to feel, or in, uh, it's much more what is it that we want to not express. I would say express. And I think what happens is um, I do feel that there's a, you know, like this NGMA show that Shuddha just mentioned, it was interesting to do it in a context where you know, in, in a building, for example, where we've been many times as, over the years, but also not to, to make an exhibition that was not trying to show a list of work. So even to be able to say, if I, what, would, what is it that one is hoping to create an expression of that can be, that can be both for the person who's making it and the person who's encountering it, and then that it's a relationship between the, all three. Do you know, between the person and the other person and then the thing, which is not a thing, because it is a collection of many things. It's a palimpsest of possibilities. It's um, tones, tonalities that are dark and bright and colorful and all sorts of things. And I think this spectrum is what you are hoping to sort of open out each time you, you make a situation happen, whether that situation happens using light and air and, and sound and looks like there's nothing there, or when it becomes like this massive thing which people don't see, it doesn't really, I think, what you're seeking to do as you, you know, this, the, the, the urge to, is not, is, because you're not making it for anything. There is no, yeah. I mean, as, as a collective, I think people will sometimes ask us, so how do you survive for so many years? You're like, because we never had a manifesto. You know, we're, we don't do manifestos. As a matter of fact, we've actually written a latenta which was as, as a, a funny uh, take on the, op because a manifesto implies that this is being done for a purpose, but um, I don't, I think that it is precisely in what happens. I think even the word open-ended for me is not like really, it's, it's not like there's a, because it implies still a kind of, te like a teleology, right? There will be an encounter which will be followed by a response to the encounter, but I don't think it works in that teleological way. Yeah. There's uh, another thing that I'd like to add. If, if one looks at the history of, let's say, public sculpture, I think it's quite fascinating that probably one could think of the pyramids as, or the Sphinx as the first biggest public sculpture. Then there's ancient Athens had this thing that I've always been fascinated by, the monument to the eponymous heroes, which is really conceptual work of art because 100 names were chosen of the heroes of Athens the Delphic Oracle picked 10 through a random lottery, and those 10 became the constituting sort of founders of the 10 tribes, right? I mean, so the sculptures are where the tribes of Athens were created, the people of Athens were created. Most public sculpture is an effort to tell people who they are, mm -hmm. either by saying, this is your king, 
this is the man who you must look up to, or usually man whom you must look up to, or these are the people who fought and died so that you may live today. I think when we, when we work in public context, we, we make an effort to tell, to, to destroy that statement, mm. to make it very difficult to tell anyone, this is who you are. Rather to say the question, this is who you are, is, or the statement, this is who you are, should not be admissible in polite society. <laughs> At this point, we are taking comments and questions from the floor. And this is an invitation, and it's like an invocation to say that the authority does not rest with the, with the panel, that it rests <laughs> with the public. And, um, and, and there is a serious statement there that also goes back to my point about wrestling with the, the tyranny of political economy. Because here we're seeing, I think Louis quite rightly asking us, what's the feedback that mm. artists want? And, and what is sufficient? I mean, Callan quite, again, in his self-deprecating manner, said that when Store 5 started, that an, an audience of one was, a, was, was comforting. Anything more than that was a source of alarm. But um, I think the point is, whether it's that or more, um, the, the, the question is, uh, where, where can you find the critical dialogue, the intimacy, the, the, the conversation that is nourishing? And this is the crazy thing about the artistic as a sector, let alone an industry, is that what makes the work justified for you as an artist may have no relevance or cannot be, appear on any scale that would be seen as legitimate in the sphere of political economy because you might say that one conversation made it all worthwhile as opposed to saying, but did it produce 40,000 visits in the hotel sector? <laughs> and what I was trying to say was um, around Store 5, it was the public was the community around which production was mm. being negotiated and that was the dialogue and indeed for something like Immigration Place, the public was the, us mm. sitting in a room discussing what this thing could possibly be. Uh, and it's just describing one public, but it's the kind of sustainable public, if you like, and it's, I don't mean to be self-deprecating. And that, 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 you know, Amin and I was scared to turn up to my own shows back then, but, uh, and I was young, but I, I think um, when we said an audience of one was enough, we said we didn't care about the world. You know, we, we just cared about creating our own context and having that kind of dialogue. So it was a, it was a kind of radical <coughs> position, you know, for us, actually, because Store 5 started at a time post you know, mm -hmm. uh, the boom of the 80s. So yeah. it was a kind of radical shift in practice or in locally at the time. Yes. say that um, the only time numbers have, you, like I was saying, uh, you know, you go into public, in a global workplace, you are invited often to go some other place, you install the work, whether it's in a museum or a gallery or a biennial, and um, then you become superfluous to, this, to the institution and you leave because the artist is not really relevant when the exhibition is open. This is also... And so we, I don't, it has never really mattered that much because one is not part of that sort of fabric in that sense. But what has been very interesting is 
the National Gallery of Modern Art to do it to exhibition there in Delhi in, in a place like Vishuddha said there were different kinds of publics, publics that we didn't know. And, and then to be told by the guards who came that the numbers of people who are coming to see our work, now you must understand that in Delhi we are not even, con I'm being a bit, I'm being a bit exaggeration, exaggerating, but we were not even called artists. We're not, till very recently they'd be like, it's a collective, it can't make art. Art is from within and all sorts of sort of things like that. So um, we have been, you know, we've had a certain kind of public that has not really been, you know, interested in our kind of practice. So then to have people say, this, the range and kind and numbers of people that are coming to see your show um, was kind of exhilarating. Um, it was because it did make you feel that there were those whom you perhaps did not know and could not know who, who were, as we were talking about the other day, who were eavesdropping, who were listening to what you had to say. Not so in that sense of listening, of, you know, of just paying attention to maybe it was, maybe they were just passing by and had nothing else to do, which is often what happens in large um, institutions of that kind. And um, the exhibition got extended and further extended and it, it lasted for four and a half months, which was kind of, un you know, which is really unexpected. Um, but what the other side of that, which is kind of funny, is that from being considered who were artists who were really too cerebral now, we've suddenly become too populist. Do you suffer from that, Callum? Um, uh, well, I suppose. Um, you know, I do, I think the engagement with a broad audience, so I don't know if, I, if this is what I feel, but what I think, ideally, that is, um, is a good thing. And the fact that however many people engage with the work and most of them don't like it or whatever, at least there is kind of, if you read through some of them, there are kind of moments where people do enjoy it or they're kind of having a kind of complex... Uh, complex discussion about the work or more complex and ultimately that's what you want you want a large general public that's engaged in a really complex ways with these things you know because part of the problem with trying to negotiate with governments etc is that they're, they're, they're this kind of the same they have a very sort of limited um, understanding or engagement with it so if the if the audience engages with it you know in a complex way then that's a that's a that's a good thing so I don't mean to kind of diminish the importance of you know yeah. and and exhilaration that so many people are engaging with it, what I get alarmed by or uh, and what I do kind of question is how it diminishes everything about the work that you intended down to this kind of um, sort of vitriolic level. And it's not even personal. I don't get insulted by it or anything because it's not my work then. It's actually, and that's one of the things about the public sphere. You talk about this impossibility of kind of large works, um, but they, they're not your production. They, they move into the world and, you know, the name of the artist, like architecture, often it disappears and it's the object that remains in the world and that's the thing that's discussed. And that's fascinating, it's interesting and that's, you know, um, some, something that's, you know, good about that context. I, mean, I, I could say that it's probably exhilarating because it was so unique or so rare. Mm. Um, and that, it was such a new experience, it felt kind of heady. But all, also to say that I think at the same time that I do at some level also feel that sense of the audience of one is, 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 is metonymic. Mm. And as we've talked yeah. about in other, way, in other contexts, your audience is not necessarily here and now. No, mm. it can also be over time, it can mm. be over place, it can be who knows how it's going to uh, aggregate itself. Um, some of the most things that get remembered and 
talked about and rumored about are things that maybe, but they have affect and they have effect yeah. and they have ripple mm -hmm. connections and so on. So I was just kind of shocked by the fact that it's happened in that way once. Mm. Eileen? There is a sense, I think, with collecting data about audiences and, and um, certainly in educational institutions, the idea of kind of knowing who your future students might be or, or, or in the art world, you know, what, how can we resolve these problems if only we knew, f you know, forensically what, those, what that audience was. Uh, and there's a lot of people that are kind of trying to collect that. And if you look at data collection generally, the, a lot of the statistics are kind of, um, uh, they're not true. You know, they're kind of, um, they're sort of approximations or they're, you know, generalisations, you know, they're, you know, logged out for kind of government reports. And in fact, ABS, um, you know, is no longer collecting data around culture, you know, anymore. And that has been something that's been relied on by a lot of funding bodies. So, in fact, that's also disappearing. Um, if I may say just a few things. One is, as artists, uh, I think there is a very interesting relationship that that one has with the public. And we've written about it in one context um, as similar to, and we invoked Don Quixote uh, because he wrote, he, he, in, in Don Quixote he tells Sancho Panza, his henchman, to take these love letters to this woman, to the woman called Dulcinea. And then when Sancho Panza asks him, so where shall I find Dulcinea? And he says, that's not my job. I don't know where you find Dulcinea, just find her and just make, the, just make the letters reach this woman. Mm -hmm. And I think that our 
relationship to that coming public, that, that public that is not just now, but will also be in the future, is somewhat like uh, Don Quixote's letters to Dulcinea. And as, it, and, and, and as an illustration, I mean, we've been talking in rucks a little bit about something that people think is a bit grandiose sometimes, is that the actual public for contemporary art and for all our work is the seven billion people of the planet, one by one. And it's not a, it's not an, it's not a grandiose claim, but to, to say that actually you don't know. We have no idea how things travel as memes and as, 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 as images. We once wrote a text in which we invoked the figure of the unknown citizen talking about monuments, that there are monuments to unknown soldiers often, but there's never a monument to the unknown citizen, uh, or very rarely. I haven't come across one. And that, that there was, that, that the, the, the distresses and the, in the, and the vagaries of the civil wars of the moment, where everywhere there is a civil war and unknown citizens are disappear in these civil wars. People who disappear don't get remembered in history because disappearance also involves the disappearance of the fact that they have disappeared very often, right? Mm -hmm. So some years ago, you would probably have been familiar with the fact that there was this terrible rape and murder of a young woman in Delhi and mm -hmm. the city's young people spontaneously rose and, and, and flooded the city with with their anger and their rage and their sorrow. And I had written an editorial in a newspaper where the figure of the unknown citizen was invoked. So from an essay by Rux Media Collective about a work that can never be made, uh, and a phrase entered a social world. And within four days, there were hundreds of thousands of young people carrying signs saying, in memory of the unknown citizen. So it was, in a sense, a very, very strange artwork of which we are not really the authors, but in some ways we are, and no one knows we are. And I think that's, that's the kind of publicness yeah. that, that sometimes does surprise the world. Those surprises are truly wonderful. Um, but you've got a question.
Maybe we should take that principle of being greedy and turn it into a positive. Yes, no, I am. I'm just I know, no, no, but I, I take it I, because maybe the problem would be that we were given this specialised role. That would be the problem. And, and in fact, being greedy and having no boundary, because that's what greedy is, it means he wants everything. Um, but the potentiality of working with everything means you can't be bound to a particular subject or a particular constituency and you have to invent the community that is coming and that you're actively involved in that creation. Which comes back to your point that when there's a sculpture for the public that is telling the public to bow to its origin or to its authority, it takes away authority from the subject. Whereas when there is no face to bow to, then the, the authority is flicked back into those people who are in the midst of the space. And perhaps the interesting moment here is how the artist is between the closed space of the institution, which as we heard today in the earlier session, is not fixed, it's always dependent on our imaginations and our shared capacities to have a consensus over the color blue, etc but also that closed space and the open space of the community to come. So I think that, in fact, is a, a really exciting um, opportunity. And in a sense, we should give ourselves that freedom. Yes? And Terry, I think, had the first, and now we'll have the last word. <laughs>
Thank you, Terry. Um, before we completely close, I'm sure Eileen and Johan want to do the final words of thanks. I personally want to thank my excellent panel for this lively and beautiful conversation. And I want to thank the organizers and everyone who's been involved. And, um, but there was a question as well. Hey, we've got to... Sorry, just say the last bit again. Um, so do you think that oh, it's easier to negotiate given the number of platforms? Um, well, it's easier to see. Uh, I don't know if it's easier to negotiate, but I mean, potentially, of course, it is. Um, I guess. Um, I guess it's what Terry's talking about, isn't it, in a way? This, there's a space in the middle that we, haven't, we can't really see yet, and it's kind of in potential between the things we know. Uh, and you've got to go and look for it, if you, you know, um, and so it's, it's, it's yet to really be articulated. I have a kind of natural resistance, perhaps, to some, some of it, but, uh, but um, you know, I think potentially, of course. I mean, look at what Sean's doing, for instance. I mean, there are ways to activate all sorts of spaces in the middle that those platforms kind of offer, yeah. Also, emphasise something of the working process. Sometimes we think about the conception stage as being separate from the public. I think what um, um, Callum described very eloquently, and I was a passenger, I have to say, but now I realise I was also really a driver. Yeah. But um, but what sh what Callum created in that team, and I suspect this is also true of Rucks processes as well is that they constitute, they constitute a mini-public. Mm. I mean, it was very carefully selected, not just professionally, in terms of technical skills, mm. but also from cultural perspectives and social knowledge. And that process is not separate from the outcome, mm. but is showing that the constitution of the artistic process occurs in a social, mm -hmm. public kind of context, even though we were meeting in his studio, which has, you know, his office, which has no windows. But anyway, that's another point. But um, well, I, before we... Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think that that, you know, I talked about this curation of this yeah. large Paramount Square, where the procurement and how you go about it, to t you know, it's a corporate word, of course, but um, how those processes have never really been interrogated here, I think, and you can establish a kind of social and how you actually establish those social networks before anything begins is the beginning of the production of yeah, the work. It's a mini public yeah. in itself. But to the um, Meisters tonight. Hi everyone, I wanna begin by saying thank you to all of the speakers and panelists who have shared their thoughts both, you know, with great insight looking back through history, but also offering very um, personal and for all of us very raw concerns about what it means to make and make public and share art in this kind of context we're operating in today. So thank you very much to all the panelists. I will also thank the Australia Council 
Arts Queensland, the Gordon Darling Foundation, Brisbane City Council, um, and Madfish, who supplied the wine for Rux, <laughs> um, to performances for their support, without which, you know, we couldn't get together and figure out uh, what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> so thanks to all of them. Um, thank you to the IMA staff. Uh, Tess really went above and beyond to help organize this, but actually the whole staff has been working tirelessly to help deliver this program and to change this exhibition week by week. It's really demanded more than we should ask of people. So thanks to everyone on our staff. <laughs> And um, 